0: The church stands on a hill, overlooking the town to the west, the Esk River below, and facing out to sea on the east side. Its stone walls are overshadowed by the massive ruins of the Gothic Abbey beside it, its size and style making an incidental hypocrisy. Look at how humble I am! Inside, the church is an unremarkable Anglican affair, with the odd nod to the maritime orientation of the congregation. On a neatly painted sign, perhaps indicative of a curate, driven to the edge of brusqueness by incessant questioning from tourists, other words, Dracula never actually came here, and we don't know where Captain Cook sat. The town is Whitby, on the Yorkshire coast, at a significant milestone in the life of one of history's great navigators. James Cook was born inland at Martin, the son of a Scottish farm labourer and a Yorkshire mother. His father's employer, recognising young James's intelligence, paid for five years of schooling. James then took to work as a farm labourer under his father. At 16 he began an apprenticeship to a shopkeeper at Stathes, a coastal village filled with sailors and fishers and fueled by their industry. Inspired by his new surroundings and the tales of adventure at sea that saturated conversations within them, James Cook requested and received permission to break his apprenticeship in the shop, taking up a second, three-year apprenticeship at sea at the advanced age of 18. The Yorkshire Merchant Fleet consisted largely of cat colliers. Sturdy, manoeuvrable, unglamorous coastal ships, carrying coal from mining ports to the industrial centres, the Industrial Revolution having increased demand for their cargo by orders of magnitude. James Cook's time as an apprentice took him throughout the North Sea, the English Channel and the Baltic, and in the years that followed he was promoted to mate. At 26, his mentor offered him his first command, but Cook turned down the opportunity, choosing to join the Royal Navy. Whether this was a tilted adventure in foreign parts the Navy might take him to, or a pragmatic decision to jump before being pushed, with looming war against France presaging a busy period for the press gangs, is up for speculation. Cook was quickly promoted to mate, based on his intelligence and seamanship. naval disasters due to incompetent leaders drawn from the nobility saw the Royal Navy gradually become a meritocracy well ahead of the rest of the nation, whose population still accepts hereditary privilege more readily than any other country outside of militant theocracies. Even so, that the son of a farm labourer, late to go to sea, rose to the rank of captain and was charged with prestigious exploratory voyages of great scientific interest and offering potentially tremendous territorial advantage to the growing British Empire, without having apprenticed in the Royal Navy itself, stands as testimony to the high regard in which his peers held James Cook's skills. At 29, Cook began earning his calipers as a cartographer in the wake of the battles the Royal Navy fought against French garrison forces on the St. Lawrence River in Canada. Observing a plane table in use on the captured shore, he asked for and received tuition in its use from the Army Surveyor, quickly mastering the simple but effective tool in a first step towards his eventual creation of some of the most historically important charts in British history. His skills were used in charting the river for safe navigation, the French forces having removed all buoys and marks to hamper British progress. In a time before accurate shipboard timekeeping allowed the difference between midday for a ship to be compared to midday at Greenwich, and from that an accurate measure of longitude to be derived, Cook charting part of the newfoundland coast observed the solar eclipse a phenomenon whose timing could be accurately predicted this observation allowed him to derive coordinates for a headland with unprecedented precision this feat reinforced his credibility with the admiralty cachet which led his superiors to put him forward for command of hms endeavor a barkentine very similar to the colcats of his time on the yorkshire fleet earmarked for service in a project commissioned by the royal society the oldest scientific organisation still operating. Alexander Dalrymple, the Scottish geographer mentioned in episode 3, collator of information about Terra Australis Incognita, and advocate of trade with its nominal 50 million inhabitants, was initially slated to lead the expedition, but his enthusiasm for finding the southern continent put his dedication to the goal of the voyage, the accurate observation of the transit of Venus, in doubt, making the role available for Cook. Commissioned a lieutenant, he was charged with leading the first purely scientific expedition since the astronomer, Edmund Halley, sailed on the Paramour in 1698 to make observations of magnetic variation in the South Atlantic. While the stated goal of the expedition was obtaining observations of the transit of Venus across the Sun to provide data to allow astronomers to calculate the distance from the Earth to the Sun, and while the ship was well stocked with scientific minds, the second secret set of orders that Cook opened after the ship left port instructed him to search for the mysterious southern land and to claim it for Britain when he found it. This seems a good spot to digress and pay some attention to what it means to claim a piece of land. And to kick it off, I'm going to quote some Rousseau. The first man who, having enclosed a piece of ground, bethought himself of saying, ''This is mine.'' and found people simple enough to believe him, was the real founder of civil society. From how many crimes, wars and murders, from how many horrors and misfortunes might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes or filling in the ditch and crying to his fellows, beware of listening to this imposter. You are undone if you once forget that the fruits of the earth belong to us all and the earth itself to nobody. Any claim to land relies on mutual agreement between the claimant and any potential rivals for that claim. If potential rivals concede the claim, perhaps because of a desire to have their own claims elsewhere similarly recognised, or perhaps if they don't care enough, or because the claimant threatens them with violent reprisals if they do kick up about it, the claimant can go on to act as though they own the place and, in as little as two generations their descendants will strut around being obnoxiously jingoistic about immigrants coming to the land of their ancestors. Native people have rarely been thought of as holding a valid claim to the land their ancestors might have occupied for generations, and the legal term terra nullius, or empty land, has been applied to large tracts of land inhabited by large numbers of local people. European powers have conveniently ignored any model of sovereignty not closely aligned with their own, and have used any lack of European conceits towards sophistication as an excuse to dismiss the existing occupants as in need of colonising. Shortages of pants and houses of worship to the right gods have stood as an argument in favour of dominating entire races, in the eyes of avaricious nations. Only once did a European power encounter a race with ideas of ownership and of the right of conquest equivalent to their own, and the surplus resources to feed and maintain a standing army to defend that ownership. And despite its faults, the Treaty of Waitangi is still recognised as an important founding document of the New Zealand we know today. As with money, territorial claims only have meaning if the involved parties agree it has meaning. Colonial and imperial ambitions have seen a wide variety of strategies employed in the race to increase the mineral, agricultural and human resources of the parent nation. Planting flags, firing guns, making cans, depositing plaques, reading proclamations, the issuing of letters patent and the publication of stamps and the franking of mail carrying those stamps from post offices in the claimed territory, to name a few. Sadly, the least violent methods of asserting dominion over a space make the least sense. If another nation invades my own, declares martial law and establishes a puppet government, I am far more likely to recognise their violently mandated authority in guns than I would take their ideas seriously if the same nation landed some punters at the airport and they held a claiming ceremony around a flagpole. Such activities must have been even more bewildering and less compelling for people who had no context for them. No understanding of what a flag was. No knowledge of the sovereign in whose name the allegedly magic words were spoken. No common ground between their own concepts of ownership and that of the interlopers. What's that? You say you own the place, and we are now loyal subjects of Maj S T. Garn. You're off your head. Oh. Oh. I see. That metal tube goes bang, and whatever's in front of it flies apart. Gotcha. You're in charge now. Trust me, things get even stranger when we come to consider the territorial claims over the only true terra nullius over which nations ever contested ownership. But back to the endeavour. Cook sailed from Plymouth on the 26th of August 1768, arriving in Tahiti in April 1769, where the transit of Venus was observed, with inconclusive results, on the 3rd of June. After the transit... Cook sailed south in search of Terra Australis incognita. Finding nothing, the ship turned north once more, encountering New Zealand, which Cook circumnavigated, demonstrating Abel Tasman's error in concluding the land part of a southern continent, and then claimed it for his king. Cook then charted the east coast of Australia and claimed that too, before the ship was holed on the Great Barrier Reef, requiring Cook to take the drastic measure of running her aground up a creek in order to make repairs. Cook sailed the Endeavour home to England in 1771, the astronomical observations insufficiently precise to serve their purpose, and the southern continent unseen. While the Endeavour lacked data for its primary and secondary goals, it was carrying thousands of biological and geological specimens brought aboard by the team of scientists led by Joseph Banks and Daniel Solander. Today, where you're accustomed to research vessels bringing home large numbers of specimens to be paraded before an almost interested press contingent before the material is curated to museum-based obscurity for as long as the ethanol supply keeps up. And we think little of it. But the scientific curiosity such collections sate was then a secondary, more palatable purpose when the context of their origins is considered. Specimen collection was once the only way you could show you'd been where you claimed you'd been. Species endemicity was recognised long before Humboldt and Darwin collated terrestrial biodiversity gradients relating to latitude. People understood that camel leopards lived in Africa, polar bears lived in the Arctic, while the red grouse was only found in Britain. Endemism allowed explorers to demonstrate they had been to particular regions by preserving specimens only available in that region, though until comprehensive museum collections and the associated handbooks were generated... It was best to collect one of everything, which is what Banks and Solander did. The wealth of material and his innate charisma earned Banks considerable fame and he was lionised by scientific and social circles alike. Cook, frustrated at having not found out anything about Terra Australis Incognita other than where it wasn't, began planning a second expedition before the first was finished. Thinking Queen Charlotte Sound, at the north end of New Zealand's South Island, would make a good base for some foray southward, he quickly convinced the Admiralty of the utility of a second voyage. He was promoted to commander. On his recommendation, the Navy purchased two Cat Colliers for the second expedition, refitting them for their new role as ocean-going vessels of exploration, renaming them Resolution and Adventure. Joseph Banks intended sailing with Cook, but made such onerous demands for changes to the ship's accommodations and for privileges for the scientists, extending to two French horn players as entertainment, that the Admiralty denied him a berth. German naturalist Johann Reinhold Foster and his son Georg were chosen as replacements and given a government grant, making Foster the first government-sponsored scientist aboard a British ship. Also among the scientific contingent, was astronomer William Wales, and in his care, K1, a chronometer assembled by Larkham Kendall as a copy of John Harrison's H-4, sent to test whether or not Harrison's accurate measurements of longitude using the H-4 were a fluke. But that's a story best covered by Davis Sobel's Longitude. Go read it. It's good. The ships left Plymouth on the 13th of July, 1772, stopping at Cape Town, Cook heard of Kerguelen's discovery of La France, Australie. Heading south, the temperature dropped as the latitude increased, and thick woollen trousers and fear-naught jackets were issued to all hands. At 48 degrees south, on the 6th of December, the livestock taken aboard at Cape Town, comprising sheep, pigs and geese, died as the temperature dropped below freezing. On the 9th, they spotted two penguins and on the 10th, the first iceberg. On the 16th, with frost in the rigging and the freshwater casks freezing over, Wales noted the first southern hemisphere record of ice blink. Light reflected into the sky from the ice beyond the horizon. (sighs) On Christmas Day, the ships lay surrounded by ice at 57 degrees 50 minutes south. On the 3rd of January, the ships turned eastward, setting out to find La France-Australie. By the 9th, freshwater supplies, always a concern on long sea voyages, were replenished to the tune of 24 tonnes between the two ships, as the sailors were tasked with the lifting of the floating ice from the surrounding water. Nothing new to those with Arctic experience, but a novelty to many, and resulting in sweet-tasting water more valuable than gold. On the 17th, the ships crossed the Antarctic Circle, a first for all involved, and for humanity to boot. After two weeks sailing below the 66th parallel, the ships were separated in a fog, though a predetermined rendezvous in New Zealand promised to reunite them. On March 17th, after four months in the high latitudes, and having sailed south of any land Kirk might have thought part of the southern continent, Cook turned for New Zealand, where the crew recuperated in dusky sound before sailing north to Queen Charlotte Sound and the reunion with the adventure. The southern winter was passed exploring the low latitudes of the Pacific before the ships turned south once more as the austral summer took hold, reaching the ice in mid-December. At the end of January, they reached 71 degrees, 10 minutes south, only about 200 kilometres from the Antarctic coast in the entrance of what we now call the Ross Sea. Unable to see land from the mastheads, and blocked from further travel south by ice, Cook decided it was impossible to reach the southern continent below the Pacific. But as the crew were healthy and the ships sound, he determined to spend another winter in warmer waters and to try to find Terra Australis Incognita south of the Atlantic the following summer. As the helm was swung, midshipman George Vancouver crawled out along the bowsprit waved his hat above his head and yelled a jaunty, Ne plus ultra! None further, taking the nominal title from Sir Francis Drake as the southernmost punter ever, upholding the very human tradition of trying to be the exiest Y, even if only by a matter of metres. Having an early stab at the most miserly curmudgeon in the world, Swedish biologist Anders Sparman, who was in his cabin at the stern as the ship went about, Noted that the sternway with which square-rigged vessels passed through the eye of the wind meant he was actually further south again, likely by a few metres more, by the time the manoeuvre was complete, and the ship was moving forward once more. Nice one, Sparman. Way to take one of the few privileges on offer to a young midshipman who demonstrated a healthy sense of humour and initiative in establishing the bowsprit gag. I could be generous and allow that the counterclaim was, in turn, tongue-in-cheek, but my experience of such claims and counterclaims made over dinner after a hard day's Antarctic heroism make me feel the pettiness was sincere. After more time in dusky sound, and more exploration in the Pacific, Cook turned south again in November 1774, then headed east, taking advantage of those world-circling westerly winds, the Roaring Forties. On the 17th of January, they discovered for the third time as the land had already been discovered by others twice already, what we now know as South Georgia. Hopeful this was finally the northern extension of the southern continent, Cook sent a party ashore to take possession of it, naming it George Land, and the site of the claiming ceremony, Possession Bay, one of many Possession Bays Cook left littering his wake. Sailing the coast, though, revealed it was an island, and a fairly crappy one to have named after a reigning monarch. Sailing further east... They sighted but could not land upon sandwich land, and Cook, sick of the cold and wary of sailing closer to the lee shore, did not circumnavigate what we now know are islands. Heading north with this last question mark left hanging, Cook speculated that any landmass extant in the high southern latitudes must be thoroughly pants and sufficiently hard to reach that none would bother. His sentiment was neatly summed up in a letter to fellow Whitby mariner, Captain John Walker, I did expect, and was in hopes, that I had put an end to all voyages of this kind in the Pacific Ocean, as we are now sure that no southern continent exists there unless so near the pole that the coast cannot be navigated for ice, and therefore not worth the discovery. Unfortunately for Cook, had his record of 71 degrees south been set at almost any longitude other than that which it was, he would have made landfall, but the mouth of the Ross Sea is one of the few places where the Antarctic coast dips so far below the circle. James Cook considered his not having found the southern continent a failure and his writing on the matter carries a pensive tone, an expectation that his efforts would be found wanting by his employers and by future generations. But throughout my childhood, Captain Cook was spoken of as a national hero, a founding father, his name carrying strong associations with national identity and Australian pride. But this mythos gradually diminished as Australians became increasingly aware of what Cook's arrival meant to the indigenous Australians. During my time in New Zealand, I found his influence on societal mindsets even stronger, though a disparity in attitudes toward his role in shaping the nation we know today was evident between the Maori and the Pākehā populations. To some, a founding figure to others, a visitor they could well have done without. Whatever a person thinks of his role in the British imperial machinery of the time, what is not disputed is his status as the greatest navigator of his age, his humane leadership in an institution known for its brutality, and his resolve to perform his duties to the letter as a seaman and as a scientist. In his attempt to find Terra Australis Incognita, Cook pushed further south than any previous deliberate foray. That he didn't find it disappointed him, but as with any scientific endeavour, a negative result still carries information. The southern continent was no longer the vast counterweight to northern landmasses imagined by Aristotle. Cook may not have found the thing, but he'd done more than anyone else to define it by its absence from areas previously occupied in the minds of philosophers and speculative geographers. The first hard news about Antarctica was at hand. It definitely wasn't at any of the points the Endeavour, the Resolution and the Adventure sailed. Cook would not be the last to shrink the potential continent without seeing it, but his contribution to that process was the greatest. With his reputation as a navigator respected throughout Europe and its offspring, it might have been that his word on the existence and utility of the southern continent was taken as final, but for his meticulous records of seals and whales in the icy waters his vessels sailed. The scientific curiosity of his voyages was about to be outstripped in vigour and magnitude by pecuniary interests. This has been a particularly long episode, but the story of Cook's origins and the string of happy accidents and decisive decisions that led to his contributions to our understanding of Antarctica is one worth telling and his competence and achievements made his two Southern Ocean voyages an obvious choice for the first Ice coffee episode to focus on exploration. Also contributing to the lengthy episode is that Cook is one of the most written about mariners in all of history, making the problem of assembling a coherent account of his efforts more a matter of what to leave out, rather than a scrabble to find what might be included. One thing often lamented about Cook's history, but which I quite like, is that his wife Elizabeth burnt their correspondence. While I recognise a lot of what we know about the people who acted as the fulcrum of human history comes from personal correspondence, it's personal, and I can't begrudge someone keeping it that way. Messages lost can never be regained, but we're lucky to have what we do, and can't complain too bitterly that someone didn't want us to read mash notes from their schmoopy. It should be noted that while Cook gets all the attention, his achievements were the result of team efforts. I find most people interesting, and even the boring ones are usually boring for interesting reasons. So it's easy for me to imagine, given the time and access to documents, that I could spend the rest of my life recounting similar tales of each member of each ship's crew with a similar degree of enthusiasm as I hope came across here. But short of a generous sponsor, that's unlikely to happen, and even people whose legend looms large in the literature may receive little more than cursory mentions in this series. I intend focusing on the expeditions and their outcomes, but big projects sometimes attract big personalities who, even when long dead, demand my attention, and Cook is one of them. Many expeditions ran into difficulties when leadership was split between two or more large personalities, and many such instances will crop up in future episodes, but there was no danger of this under James Cook's command. Even the rambunctious, well-connected Joseph Banks failed to steal the show, try though he might. This week, I give thanks to Damien Coburn for providing the Jean-Jacques Rousseau quote and the context from which I took it. It'd be nice to go into Jean-Jacques' ideas on the matter of ownership and where they sat in his broader thesis in greater detail, but the show was already long. It's friends like Damien whose citations make my late but enthusiastic gambit to understand what philosophers are on about well-resourced, if not particularly successful.